Hello, and welcome to Passing for Normal, where my guest today is psychologist, author, and organizational consultant, Dr. Susan Mecca. And we're going to be talking about how to navigate times of crisis and how to find the potential for personal growth and transformation during the most difficult challenges of our lives. Dr. Susan Mecca draws from 30 years of working with people in crisis and from her own personal experience. She provides hope, compassion, inspiration, and strategies for people who are going through all types of life crises. Susan's belief is though we can't control the critical events of our lives, we can choose how we will approach them, remain whole, and thrive. Her recent book, The Gift of Crisis, Finding Your Best Self in the Worst of Times, is an inspiring and practical guide for individuals going through medical, interpersonal, or professional crisis, as well as for their caregivers. It maps out specific ways to navigate through the shocking, impossible, and often heartbreaking events of our lives, which she will share with us today. So welcome, Susan. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here, Sharon. I'm so glad to be talking with you. You have, Your book is just incredible. It's so uh, compassionate and insightful and really um, lays out so many steps and considerations for people who are going through crisis, which is often a time of, of incredible overwhelm and, and, um, and despair. Um, so thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So let's start out. I want to ask you, how are you defining crisis? What, what really defines a crisis? You know, we think about a crisis as anything that takes you beyond your normal coping skills or set of strategies. So something that takes you, in some ways, into unfamiliar and scary territory. Um, and you see that with... Go ahead. Yeah, so is it different than um, just even a series of bad things? Or, um, you know, is it really... Uh, is it an event? Is it a series of events? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it can be both of those things. I think oftentimes we think of a crisis as being, you know, something bad happens or something incredibly unexpected happens. But I also think to your question, a series of bad events could create a crisis in somebody's life. Maybe that, you know, step one, I coped okay. Step two, I coped pretty okay. Step three, I was having trouble coping. And then the next thing happened, it was just the pool needs a new pump sets me into a downward spiral. So I'm in some kind of crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as you describe in your book, there is, um, there is a physiological component uh, to how we respond to crisis, right? It's one of the things that happens is, is we lose our coping abilities or they're impaired because we're experiencing some, often some sort of shock. Absolutely. And you talk a lot about this, and I know a lot of the movement and the sensate um, work that you do, but in a crisis, the first thing we do, our old lizard brain takes over and it says, you know, fight, flight, or, you know, hunker down and get really small so they can't kill you. And so our body um, has all kinds of responses to a crisis. It, it basically shuts down everything that's not absolutely critical for survival. And that includes minor little things like, I don't know, digestion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it shuts everything down. And we have trouble getting out of that um, in the initial stages of a crisis. You know, after I, I went to my own, I really understood and started doing some research. I really started to understand just, I mean, it impacts us psychologically, emotionally, physiologically, mentally. I mean, it, it impacts it at 
so many different levels when a crisis hits. That's why, to me, one of the most important things you can do in a crisis is to take that moment to get back in your body, to get centered back in yourself, because you are, if you're like most people, we have vacated the premises when something really bad happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you're suggesting doing that um, by um, uh, working with your breath. You also offered some um, exercises about finding your ground, like literally locating your body and locating a relationship to the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there actually are some um, like even essential oils that will help. That will help you sort of get back into yourself. Um, touch is a really important. That's one of the reasons that we move into people's hugs when we're in a crisis is because there's something very grounding about touch. Mm-hmm. Um, going exercise can be incredibly grounding because, again, it gets you back into your body. Um, and so there's, you know, it, everybody has their different ways of getting back into their bodies and is, some people don't have those ways, and that's why I'm making suggestions. But whatever works for you to get recentered, for other people, it could be meditation. You know, being able to drop down into that space where nothing but sort of the silence exists can give them that moment to get still their heartbeat and get recentered in their breathing and to come back into themselves. Right, or as you also mentioned, just um, grounding yourself in the familiar. Right. You know, when uh-huh. when your life is suddenly topsy turvy or you've your house has been burnt down by a wildfire or floods or whatever, it's like what and everything around you is no longer familiar, like reaching for something that is um, is familiar. It still exists. I heard listening to a, a Super Soul Sunday with um, Janine Roth and Oprah Winfrey, and she, Janine was talking about losing all of her life savings and the Bernie Madoff scheme. And she said, Mm. finally, after, you know, a couple of days of really just struggling, she came back to, you know, this is a cup. I have this cup. You know, this cup is still here. And just sort of looking at that, which is still here. Right. Because, um, in times of crisis, we, um, we lose our normal, you know, and, and often Mm. really abruptly. And so, you know, change, always brings disruption, even positive change, even change that we want, it brings disruption. And so how do you, how do you help people work with the disruption of change period, and then um, very uh, difficult disruption? Yeah, you know, I was thinking, I want to comment first, what you said about the positive disruption. I remember when I got my job back in, at age 27, it was the job I had been hoping and praying for, and I was just leaving a friend, celebrating it, and all of a sudden I had to run back in and throw up, because even good change <laughs> is disruptive. You know, I was very excited, but my whole system was like, ah! Yeah. And so, you know, not only that, so sometimes really it is just getting first, getting back into your body, and then... A client said it to me the other day. I thought it was really great. This is somebody who's seen her husband through a stroke. He broke his hip. Then he was diagnosed with a cancer, which turned out to be treatable. And she said, you know, every single time I get very narrowed, my focus becomes incredibly focused. I mean, my focus becomes incredibly narrow. And I focus on just what's in front of me. And that's how I think I help people with disruption is to say, Okay, all of these things that your mind is creating, and you said it beautifully in your book, Sharon, when you said, you know, you can create all kinds of stories. Why not create a good one? Mm -hmm. But we're busy creating bad ones. So all of these stories, we don't actually know they're going to happen. 
we know is what's in front of you right now. And so what do you need to do right this minute? And getting them to sort of balance in that moment and then look forward to say, what do I need to do right now? What are my most critical priorities? Um, Stephen Covey talks about it, leading a big rock life. What are the really big things? Because the other things will fall away. And for me, that's one of the amazing things that happens in a crisis. Those of us who juggle way too many balls, when a crisis hits, all of a sudden it becomes very clear what your priorities are because you really don't have the bandwidth for anything else. You know, when my husband went into the hospital with Guillain Barre, I had, that was after Nick, my son had been diagnosed with cancer and I was juggling that. And for one brief crazy making moment, I thought I can probably do this. I, I can be there for ICU and still keep working. <laughs> and then I went, who are you kidding girlfriend? You know, that my super women, superwoman tendencies had to just take a flight. I had to take a leave of absence for the first time in my life because I couldn't do it all and keep track of the priorities that were critical. Right, and you speak to a lot of people with cancer who have survived cancer, and often they will tell you how um, the gift of cancer, they might say, is that, <clears throat> is that they have found new priorities for their life, and they did get to see what was not working in their life and what possibly contributed to um, to their illness or to ignoring the signs of illness, um, mm -hmm. that actually on the other side, they're living lives that are um, more essential and more authentic to um, who they really are and want to be. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, this area of post-traumatic growth, which you're touching on a little bit, which is something that people have been researching for the last probably 15 or 20 years, but really getting serious about now is you do see a lot of that with cancer. And perhaps it's because we have so many people going through cancer, but you know, there's sort of, there's five different areas where people will really see that transformation. And that's one of them where people will say, you know, I, I don't want to do this job anymore. This, you know, life's too short. Why keep it doing this? I have a different sense of purpose. Or they say, I never recognized the strengths that I had and they see themselves differently or they see loved ones differently. Um, they see their relationship with God differently, and sometimes they just see humanity differently. I've had more than one client going through a serious life crisis who says, you know, I'm way more compassionate than I ever was before mm -hmm. because I've been in those shoes. Right. So, so oftentimes crisis really strips us down, you know, and, and asks us to, uh, like you say, prioritize and really understand what is important. You know, we've just had, um, enormous amount of wildfires here in California, um, several months ago in Northern California and just recently in Southern California and people lose their homes. And so often the response is we're safe. We're alive. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just yeah. all that stuff, all the stuff, all the things that we surround ourselves with and we think are so important and we can't give away when we're cleaning out our closet, but it all goes in an instant. <laughs> it all goes in an instant yeah. and suddenly it's okay. I mean, it's not okay. <laughs> okay. You'd rather that your house didn't burn down, but that is what people walk away with. Absolutely. Nick and I have this saying that we say is, and, and I have to mention that this got him through some pretty rough times in his early twenties, 
But I, we would say if nobody has cancer and nobody's dying, it's just not that big of a deal because mm-hmm. we had gone through both of those. Yeah. And so if he had a car wreck, you know, it was like, okay, nobody's got cancer, nobody's dying, we're good. And it does, it makes, it gives you a different continuum to live on than you had before. Yes. And of what yet, is really important. Yes. And yet, you know, we don't want people to feel badly if their crisis and it's a genuine crisis is not as large as that. Right. You know, I had that. Yeah. Yeah. I had that all the time. I had people, you know, I, I continued to work right after Nick was diagnosed because that gave me such a joy and it gave me a place to get away from the crisis. Um, but people would say, oh, I don't want to tell you about my problems. And I go, no, please, please tell me about your problems for two reasons. One, you know, it gives me a great escape from mine. But more importantly, you have to live your life on your own continuum. And so what was happening to me might be an aid on my continuum. But the fact that their daughter's, you know, in fear and danger of flunking 11th grade is an eight on their continuum. Right. And so I respect where you are on your continuum, how big a crisis that is to you. We don't have the same continuum. And I think where people make a mistake is when they say, you know, oh, well, you know, you don't, you know, you don't have anything that's really important because you're not going through what I went through. In fact, Nick and I ran into a classmate's friend while we were going through all this. Rita was in the hospital. Nick was going through cancer. And, and this guy just stopped us and told us he'd just been diagnosed with diabetes and it had changed his life and he was in a really terrible spot and how hard it was for him. And Nick and I just listened compassionately and we looked at each other and in that moment we both said we're not telling them our news because it would sound like crisis one upmanship mm, mm-hmm. you know i'll take you your diabetes and raise you a cancer and a guillain beret <laughs> and that's <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. and that that was wrong i mean we needed to be with him in his place we were in a different place than he was yeah. and you know i thought back on that you you don't want to do a crisis one upmanship Absolutely, because everyone is dealing with something in their life that is important and often disruptive, disrupted and always changing, right? And depending upon uh, the severity of the challenge, as well as one's own personal flexibility in meeting change. And that's a lot of the work that I've been doing is really helping people find flexibility and adaptability in meeting mm-hmm. change will determine how... how um, how that change gets met. So I want to ask you, do you find in all of the work that you do that there are traits that help one person cope well with a crisis while another does not? And how can we develop those traits? Yeah, I I think there are some. I do agree flexibility and even creativity. I think one of the things that got us through was, you know, my husband Vito and I were great at solving problems together. I sort of came in from the creative magical side and he came in from the logistical how do we make this work side and so when we when he came home in a wheelchair we were great at solving those you know the logistical issues I think creativity flexibility is one I think resilience is always one and I do think that resilience is something that you know can be built I think some people are more naturally resilient than others and that's a whole other podcast about why but um, and I also think interestingly enough oftentimes spirituality, some kind of whatever it is, it doesn't mean you have to be religious, but some kind of sense that there is a picture larger than the what you can see will go in towards helping people have hope, which you talk about, and I believe a lot about, is having hope in a crisis that something can come out of it. And I think that that's 
why it's so important for me to talk about how do you set up the possibility of growth and how do you navigate this? Because when people start to see something possibly good could come out of this, even though the outcome itself may be bad, there is something good that can come out of it. I think that builds some of that resilience and that ability to handle crises. Um, And then there's also the extent to which, as a psychologist, this event matches the other stories of their life. So if they've always been told that they're unworthy from their earliest days and they get fired, then that matches that story. And I think it's a harder crisis to overcome. Mm -hmm. I I think Mm -hmm. the extent to which somebody holds themselves responsible for the crisis can make it hard for them to overcome. You know, Nick talked about he had some other crises in his life for which he was uh, an architect. But in, in cancer, he said, you know, I, when my, I didn't do anything to get that. Yeah. And so it was much easier for him to navigate through that than it was some of the other things, you know, having to come back from a bad grade, for example. Right, right. And um, how do you address that when people, when people do feel responsible or when people are responsible to at least contributing to the crisis? Maybe they were ignoring their health or maybe they allowed their um, home to, you know, fall into disrepair so that it was more easily, uh, you know, flooded or, you know, like, how do you, how do you address that? I think think about two things. One is just talking about the uselessness of of dragging that big bag of shame behind you Mm -hmm. and the amount of energy that it takes. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're, if you're, if you're in shame or you're in, you know, resentment or whatever, somebody once said resentment is like taking poison and waiting for the other guy to die. I mean, it's the same thing (laughs) as when you're nice, right? I love that one. Buddy Hackett also said, he said, I've given up being resentful. Invariably, I'm mad at them and they're out dancing. But I I think that, you know, so the idea is that if you are spending your time being resentful about a decision you made or what other people have done to you, you're just bleeding energy that you really need for this crisis. Mm -hmm. And so one of the ways I'll help them with that is to really schedule that, that negativity and say, okay, you know, it's, it's going to, we can't let it take over your day because that bleeds all the energy out you need. So we're going to schedule it from 9 to 9.30, and you get to do whatever, you know, you can shout at the person in your mind, you can write to them, you can stomp up and down, whatever you need to do to really get mad about that. But at 9.30, you got to let it go and then see it again the next day at 9 o'clock. So schedule those things. Um, and then I, the other thing I help them do is to sort of focus on, okay, you're here. You wish you weren't here. You wish you hadn't done something differently. But let's talk about how this can change you for the better knowing this. What, what will you do differently because of this? How will, you, how will this inform your future in a way that will make your future better, that it wouldn't have been that way without this crisis? So maybe I got my health bad yes. and I you know, ended up having some issues well, now it's going to inform. I've got a better chance of being a healthier seventy-year-old because I got whopped upside the head with something at sixty-two, and I paid attention to it. So there is an upside to that, um, and you know, sometimes it, it depends on where the person is in the process. Again, I, I just listened to this, this podcast, but Janine Ross said something so funny. She lost all her money, and she called a friend, and her friend said, "You know, nothing of importance is lost." And Janine said, "This is not the time to be spiritual." <laughs> 
and yet it's <laughs> always it, oh it's always the time to be spiritual because exactly. that perspective um that perspective will take you far like you say it opens you up to a to a larger sense of belonging a larger sense of of um of life of connection and ultimately that is what brings us through these these moments of loss um even significant I absolutely loss. yeah I absolutely agree so you're talking now about the gift of crisis you know mm -hmm. about about something somehow this crisis changes our lives where it seems like it's for the worst but there are ways in which we can learn and grow and be and uh, it's a long life you know we live a long life and so um even if we learn these lessons late in life it's still it's still a transformed life so can you talk more about how how that transformation takes place. How are we, t how are we taking something which is uh, perhaps so dire and so full of grief and, and moving it to another place? So it's an interesting thing about looking at the gifts is that it's rarely at the time do we see them. Sometimes people do. Some people in the middle of a crisis will say, oh my gosh, I really am struck with you know, my, our common humanity and I'm so grateful. You get some of that. Most people have to get to the crisis and look back at it to start to see those things. Mm -hmm. In fact, I interviewed about 12 senior leaders at one point who had had cancer and asked them how they got through it. And all of them said, you know what? I hadn't really thought about this until you started asking me these questions. And now I can see all these amazing things that came out of it oh, or wow. these gifts that came out of it. And so it told me that, you know, some of that process of finding the gifts really is going back and looking for them. That being said, I really believe a couple things make a huge difference in setting yourself up for that. The first one is intentionality. And as I say in the book, you know, I was struck by Viktor Frank's, Frankl's point that we can't, we can control, we can always control our attitude if we can't control anything else. Yeah. And that stuck with me through years. And so when this hit, you know, I asked myself, I call that a put up or shut up moment, by the way, when you've been preaching something and all of a sudden you have to apply it to your own life. It's really irritating. <laughs> oh, those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hate those. Yeah. I hate them. I hate them. Yeah. Yeah. But it, so, but I said, okay, Susan, you've been out, you know, you've been preaching, literally, I was in China preaching this whole thing. And I got back, it was a couple of years later, and I said, okay, what, what are your intentions? And when I sat down and I wrote my intentions, which were to stay present and positive, and to do everything I could to get my men through this in a, in a whole way of fashion for us, and to, to find something good that would come out of it. I think in those moments, I started to create the potential for growth. Because I said, I believe this is possible. And so what that meant was that I was looking for it. My limbs were sharpened for it. I was, I was set up to find the positive in it. The other th another thing that I think that was incredibly helpful was gratitude. You know, and there were times that that was a very hard won battle. It was me driving home, you know, from working out in the morning going, I'm grateful that it's 35 and not 30. I'm grateful that, you know, it's between clenched teeth. I'm coming up with the things that I'm grateful for. But even in the hardest of times, I found that if I made it a regular practice of finding something to be grateful for, it shifted me. And if it shifted me, the thing that was so important to me as a parent was I knew I 
that Nick was a barometer for my feelings. And so if I was positive, upbeat, and competent and confident, he would be too. And so you talk about it in your book a lot of times, love is the reason that we make changes. Absolutely. You know, love, particularly when Nick was the first one diagnosed, love for my child was like, okay, I will, I will do this because this is what my child needs to help him get through this crisis. So I think gratitude, I think setting an intention, those are two of the biggest ways that we seed the possibility for growth. Because as you said, change is disruptive, but it can be, it can be transformative and it can be destructive. Because I have people that I deal with as well, who for whom an earlier crisis has been, you know, laid the seeds of, of resentment and despair and um, negativity in their lives. So you, we have a choice of what we will do with this. That's right. And you talk about, you know, disruption and you talk about creativity as being one of the, one of the, the true resources for being able to, um, to find resilience and creativity really is utilizing disruption, right? You know, we are most mm-hmm. creative when we are off balance, when something, Absolutely. when, uh, when we're not in the status quo, everything isn't the same, same, or what creativity is inviting is to not be the same, same. And again, we think of creativity or we want to think of creativity as, um, you know, like when things are good or whatever, but the, you know, the, the stereotype of the, of the miserable artist or the miserable writer who writes out of their misery, but what they're writing out of is their disruption. You know, mm-hmm. they're writing Absolutely. from what's, what's become available is something new um, because, uh, because what was has been disrupted and lost. Um, and so as well as creativity needing to be employed um, in problem solving, right? Now, mm-hmm. in a crisis, Absolutely. you certainly have um, a set of problems that you need to that you need to solve. Yeah, and they're and they they come all the time. And I think that one of the things that is critical in a crisis is to recognize that you're always, you know, in many cases, not always, but in many cases, the waves of change will just keep coming. Yeah, it's it's almost like when the when something bad happens, <clears throat> you find out that you're getting a divorce, you've lost your job, you think, okay, well this is this is it. Now everything needs to settle down. And my experience is there's reverberations from those changes, mm-hmm. and sometimes they continue, particularly when you're dealing with a, a life threatening diagnosis or uh, something that's an ongoing issue. There's multiple minor crises or multiple crises that continue to roll out from that first one. And so staying creative as well as staying, you know, sort of loose on your feet yeah. of not getting so like, okay, this is the way that it's going to work. Now I have, I've resolved this problem. I know what we're going to do. This is how it's going to handle. And you're just setting yourself up for the crisis to come back and say, oh, really? You want to talk about that? Okay. <laughs> how about this one? Yeah. But if you say, okay, this is going to work right now, and I don't know if it's going to work forever, then you're much more prepared of, okay, well, that's not working anymore. Let's try plan Z at this point or Z1. Um, so having the multiple, having a belief that there's going to take multiple iteration of solutions, mm-hmm. but if you keep focused on what's the outcome that you want, then you can stay creative around that. So if I say this is the outcome that I want in this crisis, I want to come out of this you know, stronger. I want to come out this with some gifts. I want to come out with my family as whole as possible. 
you know, then I can, I can navigate those bobbles in the waves or those waves of change more effectively because I still know where I'm heading. Great. So, Susan, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to um, lay out the six stages that you talk about in your book, the six stages of a, of a crisis. Um, you can just list them, but I really want our listeners to hear how, how well you've mapped out the territory. Um, so if you could just um, lay those out for us, I'd appreciate it. Absolutely. The first one is surviving the initial shock. You know, that's, that's when it first hits. And there's a lot, as we talked about, there's a lot to that of getting back into your sort of getting back into your body so that you can navigate forward. It's you're a little lost, you're turned upside down, nothing looks familiar. And so surviving that initial shock is the first piece. The second stage is regaining your balance. So it's like once you're back into your body, I, I liken it a lot to trying to cross a river on a log. You know, if you get too anxious, if you get too fast, you're not going to make it across. You want to get steady on that log and look at where you're trying to head. And then once you know where you're going, then you can start moving in that direction. The third one is gather your resources. And this includes one of the areas you talk a lot about in your book as well, of the community. I think that, you know, like you said, it's impossible to do a crisis without a community or make change that community. I think it's, it's a modern-day thought. We can do things alone. And the research clearly says that people who try to navigate a crisis by themselves have worse outcomes than those who gather in a community of support. So gathering resources is not only external but, and the Internet, and it's also your own strengths. The fourth one is crafting a new normal, or as you like to say, crafting a new abnormal. I like that. <laughs> might steal that. Um, and it's looking at what are the priorities in your life and making yourself and your own self-care one of those priorities. And if you're a caretaker of somebody or a caregiver of somebody who is going through a crisis, this is a particularly difficult one and a particularly critical one. And so really saying, this new normal is going to require me to do these things. How do I take care of myself so I have the strength and energy to do that? Once a crisis is over, there's a reemergence. And I mentioned this in the book, but it's a great story. When Vito died, some, a neighbor gave us this um, monarch butterfly in a cocoon, and it started to emerge. And we watched mm-hmm. the process, and it was hours of reemergence. And that it came out, it stood on the edge of the cocoon, it flexed its wings, it waited till they were dry, it took a first little leap over to something, it got some nurturance. And that, to me, was such an amazing metaphor for how do you emerge from a crisis. You don't, it's not one day, you know, the doctor says, okay, your cancer's in remission and we hope not to see you again. And you go, okay, back to normal. Yeah. You've, got, you've got a lot of time. And any crisis, a divorce, a job loss, a, a losing a house, you know, whatever it might be, the reemergence is a while. And so that's stage five. And then the last one is what I call panning for gold. Because I really do believe amidst all the debris and the muck and the mire and the pebbles and the trash that you find while you've been going through a crisis, <clears throat> if you look through it, you will find some nuggets of gold. Um, and they may be important gold that you will use for other people's good. Lots of people do that. They come out of a crisis, and you've talked to many of those people, and said, how do I change the world for the better because of what I went through? And for other people, it's just, how do I change my own life? 
And so all of those steps, and those steps are not linear, by the way. They're presented in a linear fashion, but they can be repeated at, at will and at <laughs> nauseam from time to time. <laughs> yeah, 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 I get that. Yeah. Well, Susan, um, our conversation is going to come to a close right now. I could talk to you forever, and I have a feeling that I will. Um, Excellent. Yes. um, Your book, The Gift of Crisis, is truly a gift. It's truly a Mm -hmm. gift for anyone and everyone going through uh, major changes, major crisis, minor crisis, um, because of the way in which you um, have not only thought it through, experienced it with yourself and with other people, um, the way to walk through and to walk yourself back from crisis. So, um, So I can't recommend your book enough, and I thank you so much for having lived the life that, um, that gathered all of this together. Um, and so well, if you could, you. please um, tell our listeners how they can uh, find you, how they can find the book. What's the best way? Excellent. The book is on, at this point, Amazon and Nook. And I'm, uh, interestingly enough, I'm running a special till the end, uh, end of the month because January, from my experience as a therapist, is usually a month where a lot of people are going through many crises. And I've always wanted this book to be very accessible to anybody who can, who might need it. And so I've put it on sale for the month of January. So if you're interested, <clears throat> go get it now. You know, it's definitely cheaper than it normally is. You can contact me at www.drsusanmecca.com. And I'm on Twitter occasionally as at Dr. Susan Mecca. And I'm on Facebook at Dr. Susan Mecca. Um, so those are the best ways to get a hold of me. Um, and you can contact me, I think, through drsusanmecca.com as well. There's a place to contact me if you want to ask me a specific question. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I've learned so much from you. It's been great speaking with you. Well, it's been a delight to talk to you and, and to read your book as well, Sharon. It's a great book. So thank you very much for having me on today. Great. Thank you. Bye. Uh-huh.